0: The Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles understood that human beings are social creatures, and therefore we tend to bend towards those with whom we are in relationship. So be careful who you hang out with because bending becomes leaning, becomes following, and before you know it, you have become who you're hanging out with. And therefore, choose your companions
1: wisely. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. Human beings are social creatures and we bend toward those with whom we are in relationship. Understanding that is an important aspect of wisdom. We tend to think of ourselves as independent thinkers, but the truth is, often our emotions and affections are driving the bus, with our brains and our theology relegated to the back seat. Therefore, we need to be careful who we love. That's not the sort of thing we hear a great deal anymore within the church, but as we will learn today, that is something that is taught in the Bible, Old Testament and New. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love you
0: to open it now to Proverbs chapter 1. We did an entire episode introducing the book of Proverbs, so if you haven't had the chance to check that out, I would recommend that you do so. As I mentioned there, the book of Proverbs presents itself as a sort of anthology of wisdom. There's a short preamble, which we'll read today in Proverbs 1, 1 through 7, that is followed by 12 poems about wisdom, which run through to the end of chapter 9. Following that, we have a variety of secondary sources or collections, some attributed to Solomon and some transparently and unashamedly attributed to others. As I said, Proverbs is an anthology, a compilation of wisdom poems and sayings originally put together by Solomon and presented, it would appear, to a royal son. And of course, that explains the masculine perspective in the book of Solomon. The young man is told to be wary of Of the seductive woman, for example. And there's no corresponding guidance given to young women as to the dangers associated with creepy, lustful men. But that is to be expected. This is a book of wisdom and advice gathered for a particular person. And that person happens to have been a young man. But that doesn't mean that only young men can profit from this book any more than it means that only Romans can prophet from Paul's epistle to the Romans. At the end of the day, this is a book about how to live well and wisely in God's world. And all people ought to be interested in that. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse one. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. To give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Verse 7, as you may have heard before, is really the key verse uh, for understanding all of Proverbs. We mentioned it's sometimes called the motto for the book of Proverbs. You could probably expand that and say that verse 7 is really the key verse for understanding the entire wisdom corpus. It's the motto for the wisdom writings as a whole. So we'll come back to that and park ourselves there and spend a fair bit of time trying to understand verse 7. But verses 1 to 6 are important for us to understand as well what we have here is basically a definition of a biblical proverb. The Hebrew word translated as proverb there in verse one is mishli, from the root word mashal, which literally means comparison, but which came to refer to any sort of wise or sage saying. But then verses two to six narrow that definition considerably. The book of Proverbs is not about sage sayings generally, but is rather about to Paraphrase the words of the text, knowing wisdom and instruction. It is about understanding words of insight. It is about wise dealings in righteousness, justice, and equity. It intends to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. It is a source of learning and guidance, and mastering this content should allow the faithful student to make good and godly use of other sources of wisdom as well. That's a street-level paraphrase of verses 2 to 6. Now, as I mentioned in the introductory episode, there are discernible layers in the book of Proverbs. It is clear that the collection underwent some expansion and repackaging at some point. In Proverbs 25 verse 1, it says, these also are Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied. Okay, so apparently... 200 years or so after this collection was originally put together by Solomon for his royal son, another king of Judah, King Hezekiah, authorized an expansion and republication. We can tentatively imagine that he took the original anthology and added some other sayings of Solomon to it, maybe also the words of Agur and the words of King Lemuel, and he may have generalized the introduction so that it commended the work not just to one royal son, but to all covenant children, as per verse 4. Now, of course, we can't be sure about that. Maybe Solomon always envisioned that this work would be read by his son and also by other young people generally. Either way, in verses 2 to 6, we get a definition of a biblical proverb and a suggestion as to who, in particular, should be paying attention to this material. In the form that we have it, the book of Proverbs is a catechism for children and youth in the matter of godly wisdom. The word translated as youth in verse 4 means basically anyone who is not yet an adult. Bruce Walkie says here, A youth was held accountable when 20 years old, but could not serve at the temple until he was 30. Close quote. The book of Proverbs was thus originally targeted at people who were approaching moral accountability and who hoped one day to be able to serve usefully and fruitfully within the covenant community. And that brings us to verse 7, which, as I mentioned, is generally considered the motto, the key to understanding the entire wisdom corpus. Let me read it to you again. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. As I said, this is often described as the motto of the book of Proverbs, the key to the entire wisdom corpus. It appears here and then in some form or another a further 19 times over the course of the book. The saying itself represents an example of contrasting parallelism. So listen again. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That's the first statement. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. That's the contrasting parallel. Remember that in the Bible, a fool is someone who lives as if there is no God. Psalm 14 verse 1, for example, says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good, close quote. So what we have here is a description of Of the fundamental turning point or the fundamental junction, the fundamental crossroads, however you want to put it, every human being comes to this crossroads in their heart and in their mind. If they say with the fool that there is no God, then they turn down a road which leads to folly, ignorance, and corruption. Now that is not to say that a person going down that road can't be smart or can't be useful or wise or do intelligent things, of course they can. They might become experts in metallurgy or chemistry or navigation or astronomy, but in a fundamental sense, they can't make sense of the world because they refuse to acknowledge its creator. Refusing to acknowledge that fact will eventually twist and distort their entire view of reality. Taking that turn away from God and away from the first and fundamental truth of the universe leads to corruption of thought and degradation of conduct. But the other road, the road that begins with the fear of the Lord, leads toward knowledge, right perception, right perspective, and wise behavior. So here we have an example of the two roads imagery that dominates wisdom literature. Many of the poems. In this introductory section, we'll take the form of the wise father or woman wisdom calling on the son to walk on the path of wisdom, while woman folly calls out attempting to seduce the young man into taking roads that lead to death and ruin. So really, this is this is Psalm 1. This is the two roads worldview. We've got a road that leads to life, blessing, and wisdom, and prosperity, and then another road that leads to darkness, deceit, degradation, and death. The road that leads to life begins with the fear of the Lord. That's the fundamental belief, the core value, the determining presupposition at the headwaters of it all. So what exactly is that? What does it mean to fear the Lord? Tremper Longman III is very helpful here. He says, the verb has a semantic range that goes from what might be called respect or awe to utter terror. Indisputable, however, is the basic premise that to fear Yahweh is to stand in a subservient position to him, to acknowledge one's dependence upon him. In the context of knowledge, it is to recognize that there is no true knowledge without reference to him, Close quote. So in essence, to fear the Lord is to stand in right relation to him. It is to acknowledge him as creator, source, authority, and judge. It is interesting that Solomon uses the covenant name for God in this verse. He says, literally, the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. So it is not theism generally that leads to right thinking and right living. Rather, it is the fear of the God who is there. It is being in right relationship with the one true God, the God of the covenants, the God revealed ultimately in Christ that leads to knowledge and wisdom. The Old Testament scholar Douglas Stewart captures that sentiment very well. He puts it this way. He says, "'The fear of the Lord is enjoined throughout Scripture, demanding that God's people stand always in awe of him, appreciate his supremacy and greatness, fear the consequences of disobeying his will, and not treat lightly any aspect of their covenant relationship with him,' lest the consequences be severe or even fatal. Attempts on the part of some in modern times to define fearing the Lord as merely respecting him distort the biblical evidence, quote. So it is that kind of fearing the Lord that is the beginning of knowledge. It is knowing that God made the world, God governs the world, God watches us as we live in the world, and God judges us when we pass on from the world That leads to right thinking and right behaving. Indeed, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction.
1: Pastor Paul, I want to jump in here and talk a little bit about what it means to fear the Lord. You said in the program audio that verse 7 is kind of like the theme verse for the entire book. Yeah, and in fact, there are slightly different variations on that verse multiple times in the book
0: of Proverbs, and then also scattered throughout the other wisdom books. So you could even make the argument that verse 7 is the theme verse for the entire wisdom corpus. And by wisdom corpus, you mean all the wisdom books in the Bible, right? Yeah, Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, Psalms, and then we often throw in Song of Solomon as well.
1: Okay, so... The fear of the Lord somehow is the key to biblical wisdom. But for most Christians today, at least in my experience, not many talk about the fear of the Lord. We talk about the love of the Lord, um, the mercy of the Lord, and the kindness of the Lord. And I think that if you started talking about the fear of the Lord in most churches, people will look at you like you're some kind of crazy person or, or maybe some kind of heretic. So how can something so important— sound so foreign to modern-day Christians? Well, that's a great question.
0: And I'm sure there are multiple factors that have contributed to that reality. One of them is just plain old-fashioned biblical illiteracy. Many people hear sermons about Bible-y things that don't actually contain a lot of authentic Bible content. And then many people have verses and snippets of the Bible memorized without ever actually reading the Bible from cover to cover. So we tend to know little bits of the Bible really well, without any real sense of the whole. So that's probably the main answer. But then too, I think we have struggled to understand how love and fear go together. God loves his children, so why would they fear him?
1: Exactly, and I admit, I struggle to
0: understand that. Well, I found the definition provided by Tremper Longman III to be really helpful. I cited it in the program audio, talking about what it means to fear the Lord. He says, the verb has a semantic range that goes from what might be called respect or awe to utter terror. Indisputable, however, is the basic premise that to fear Yahweh is to stand in a subservient position to him, to acknowledge one's dependence upon him. In the context of knowledge, it is to recognize that there is no true knowledge without reference to him. Close quote. So that's what the Bible is after here. We're not looking for anyone to fall on the floor screaming. We're looking for people to understand how they rate in this universe. We're looking for people to understand that God is the center. He is the authority. He makes the rules, and he is the judge. So we don't create reality. We submit to reality. We don't use language to form truth. We use language to reflect truth. That's what it means to fear the Lord. And that posture, that understanding, really is the beginning of wisdom, not to mention the
1: beginning of health, peace, stability, and fruitfulness. Okay, well, that is really helpful. Thanks for that. Let's jump back into the story now at verse 8. Hear, my son,
0: your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. Let's just pause here for a moment. As I mentioned above, in this first section of the book of Proverbs, we have a short preamble in chapter 1, verses 1 to 7, followed by 12 poems about wisdom, which run through to the end of chapter 9. Ten of those poems are presented as lectures from the Father, or fatherly talks, however you want to think of them, about the value and pursuit of wisdom. The other two are presented as extended addresses by woman wisdom or wisdom personified. She speaks, she calls out, she invites the young man to follow her. We'll talk about who she is and how she should be understood when we encounter her for the first time in verse 20. Here in verse 8, we begin to read the first of the introductory poems. It is presented as a speech by the father along with the mother to the young man starting out in life. Let's listen to what they say. We jump back into the discourse at verse ten. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, Come with us, let us lie in wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths. For their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. This first poem is a call from the mother and father to their son to avoid evil associations. If sinners should come to you and entice you with the promise of easy money, do not consent. Do not listen to them. Do not go with them. Run away. They remind their son that everything looks easy before you do it. Young people in particular are inclined to underestimate danger and to overestimate reward. And so it is here. These young hooligans promise the young man that they will quickly overwhelm travelers on the road and seize great treasures and riches. The parents, though, remind the young lad that wicked plots rarely go off as planned and more often than not end up only in the death of the plotters. These men lie in wait for their own blood Even if they succeed a time or two, eventually the odds are going to catch up with them and they will fall into the pit that they have dug. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for gain. There is no shortcut to wealth and stability. People who think there is only reveal their own foolishness. So stay away from people like that. They will drag you into their nonsense schemes and leave you holding the bag when trouble comes. That's the substance of their warning. And few grown-ups would dispute the wisdom of what they say. Young people are always attracted to easy money. They see the profits, but they somehow fail to see the perils. Now, what's interesting to me is that this is the substance of the first wisdom poem in the section. And I think that reflects a, a difference in terms of how we perceive the dangers of evil association as compared to how folks estimated such things in Bible times. Even in the New Testament, there's an awareness that people are influenced positively or negatively by their associations. So the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. That's 1 Corinthians 15.33. The Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles understood that human beings are social creatures, and therefore we tend to bend towards those with whom we are in relationship. So be careful who you hang out with, because... Bending becomes leaning, becomes following, and before you know it, you have become who you're hanging out with, and therefore, choose your companions wisely. The second poem in this section is an interlude in the voice of woman wisdom. She speaks here, and then we don't hear from her again until chapters 8 and 9, though the father encourages his son to get to know her and to cherish her counsel above all else. So who is she? The majority of scholars understand woman wisdom to be a literary or rhetorical device. She is wisdom personified, according to scholars like Bruce Waltke and Alan Ross. Tremper Longman III goes a a step further than those scholars and says that she is Solomon's wisdom personified. But I think that's a distinction without much of a difference. The bottom line is she's not a real person, per se, and she is not strictly speaking, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, just to head that off at the pass. Jesus is the wisdom of God, and Solomon is speaking the wisdom of God here and casting it through the mouth of his fictional character. That is not quite the same thing as saying that woman wisdom is Jesus. I think we would be better off not saying that. Woman wisdom is a literary character personifying true, faithful covenant wisdom, We begin to hear her voice now in verse 20. Wisdom cries aloud in the streets. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you because I have called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster, Close quote. I love what K.T. Aiken says about woman wisdom here. He says, Lady wisdom is no gentle persuader. She shouts, pleads, scolds, reasons, threatens, warns, and even laughs. Pulpit bashing and hellfire preaching, if ever there were. All quite unladylike and nowadays also quite unfashionable, even frowned upon. That's good. And that's a pretty decent summary of what we're seeing here. Solomon depicts woman wisdom as basically a street preacher. She stands on the corner and begs the young men passing by to listen to her. She warns them that if they ignore her counsel, then she will laugh at them on Judgment Day. Now, what that means is that we reap what we sow in life. If not immediately, then ultimately. You can't ignore the principles of wisdom your whole life and then cry foul on Judgment Day. Wisdom will be your accuser on that day, not your defender. If you say, well, I was led astray by my hooligan friends and my layabout companions. I had good intentions in my heart, but other people steered me wrong. (laughs) Nonsense, woman wisdom will cry. I warned you to keep away from those fools, but you didn't listen. You listened to them instead of to me. So don't call on me now as your defender. Basically, that's what this little picture is saying, saying if you ignore Lady Wisdom in life, then she will be your accuser in your destruction. Her voice is heard in the public square, which is a way of saying that it's not like she's hard to find. All you have to do is open your eyes. All you have to do is open your ears. You can taste and discern with your ear and know what is real and what is false. You can... Look up at the stars. You can look at your own body. You can look at the richness of field and forest, and you can know. You know there is a God. You know there is order. You know there is corruption, and therefore you know that wise choices need to be made. Lady Wisdom is everywhere. None of this is hidden, even from the young and naive. Therefore, they are without excuse. Lady Wisdom is calling to you, but you're not listening. The point of this little parable or picture is to say that there is no second chance for the fool. If you reject Lady Wisdom in life, then you will answer to Lady Wisdom in death and destruction. That's what's being said in verses 24 to 26. I called and you didn't listen. So on the day of calamity, you will call and I won't listen. There is a sense in which truth does not respond to emotional appeal it is what it is. The boundaries are what they are. And sooner or later, judgment is coming. So conduct yourself accordingly. Or to put it another way, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. That's the motto of this book. And that is the path that Lady Wisdom is
1: commending. Thanks be to God. Well, that is all the time we have for this week. As always, friends, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet